Live from Mexico City, this is The Morning Break with Graham Stanley, and you are listening live. Hello and welcome to The Morning Break. My special guest today is DJ Kaiser, Professor and Director of TESOL at Webster University in St. Louis, Missouri. Among other things, we'll be talking about English language teaching and academia. Join us live if you can and take part in the conversation. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or join in the conversation by downloading the Podbean app and following Teachers Talk Radio. Hashtag TT Radio. Welcome to the morning break, everyone. As I mentioned in the intro to the show today, I will be talking live to DJ Kaiser, a professor and director of TESOL, teaching English to speakers of other languages at Webster University in St. Louis, Missouri in the US. I first met DJ in Uruguay. He was there on a Fulbright grant conducting research in 2016. His findings on transformative teaching including investigating the impact of the remote teaching of primary and secondary students in the country were very helpful for those of us working on the project full-time and trying to understand what needs to be done to improve the learning outcomes of the students. That for me is what constitutes the best type of educational research, that which is used to make changes to teaching and learning to improve things. I'm looking forward to talking to DJ about this and other aspects of his role and uh, at the university and his acad- and how his academic work intersects with ELT. Now I'll be talking to DJ right after the Teacher Talk Radio News. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you, too, through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Christian Institute website reports that MPs have backed a push to ensure that state schools in England uphold the legal requirement to teach religious education, which in most cases reflects the centrality of Christianity. MP Martin Vickers led a Westminster debate on the issue and drew attention to the National Association of Teachers of RE on the Department for Education 2021 School Workforce Census. The census revealed that one in five schools did not teach RE at all in year 11, despite being required to do so by law. An average of 10% of schools gave no time to RE in the years 7, 8 or 9. MP Nick Fletcher said that without an understanding of Christianity, It is not possible to understand the foundations of our institutions and laws or British culture. He went on to outline that other religions should be properly recognised in the preparation of RE syllabus, but that RE needs to recognise the particular place of Christianity in Great Britain. Mr Fletcher cited other demands placed on schools and failures by Ofsted to hold schools to account as the reason for letting RE slip. In response, Nick Gibb, a minister in the DfE, 
said all mainstream state-funded schools are required to teach RE. Schools that are not are acting unlawfully or are in breach of their funding agreement. He also added that collective worship was an important part of school life. Mr Gibb further reiterated the government's commitment to mandatory collective worship and RE, but also a parent's right to withdraw their children from the subject. Earlier this year, a judge ruled that exclusively Christian RE lessons in Northern Irish primary schools is unlawful after a legal challenge was launched. The decision was, is being appealed as it dismissed the parents' right to withdraw their child from these lessons. In Lincoln, the Investigate Learning team at Lincoln Castle have been recognised for the outstanding learning programme they offer schools, colleges and universities. The Sandford Award recognises museums, galleries and historic buildings that offer the very best programmes aligned with the national curriculum. This year, the castle has welcomed around 8,000 pupils and students, teaching them about the medieval monument's history. The Sanford Awards lead assessor described the insight the programme offers as unique and compelling. The programme covers a series of locally and nationally significant history, ranging from the medieval world and Magna Carta to the treatment of prisoners in Victorian England, bringing it vividly to life in a way that resonates with learners. In a recent news report on Teachers Talk Radio, we covered the Global World Skills Competition, which is taking place in various countries across the globe. This past week, the UK was hosting for the first time in over 10 years. Competitors have travelled from around the world to compete in aircraft maintenance and manufacturing in Cardiff and Wrexham. Finalists had the opportunity to visit various places of interest in the local areas, including countryside, museums and an old coal mine. These young competitors have been training for the last three years to win medals and showing off their skills. The UK entrants feature homegrown Welsh talent with George Denman from Swansea telling FE Week how he hopes competing in world skills will be a huge boost to his career because it teaches key skills like coping under pressure, working as a team and time management. Finally, new research reveals the impact of accent on social mobility. The latest report from Accent Bias in Britain project led by Queen Mary University London's Professor Debiana Sharma reveals that more than a quarter of senior professionals from working class backgrounds have been singled out in the workplace for their accent. The project examines the impact that someone's accent has on their journey through education and into the workplace. Professor Sharma says the research shows that accent-based discrimination actively disadvantages certain groups at key points. This creates a negative cycle reinforcing anxiety and marginalisation. The report recommends that action should be taken to diversify the workplace to ensure a range of accents is prevalent in organisations. Further details of the report can be found on the Queen Mary University of London website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Hello and welcome back to Teachers Talk Radio. This is the morning break and I'm here with today's very special guest, DJ Kaiser. DJ is with us live in the studio. Hello, DJ. How are you? And what have you been up to recently? I'm good, Graham. Um, uh, so recently, I've been working on a big curriculum revision project. So we're taking our T-cell program and uh, took six core courses and have revised pretty much the entire curriculum. That's taken up most of my time recently. Wow, that, that sounds like a very big job indeed. It's... Uh taken a long time i guess yes that has but i'm finding it's well worth the work so thank you thank you very much for joining me today i know it's as early for you as it is for me in the morning and mm -hmm. so i do appreciate it but i think talking live is always a, a plus oh, yeah. on teachers talk radio so um i've introduced you with the title of your roles at webster university but uh, to go a little deeper, I'd love to find out a little bit more about how you spend, for example, most of your time professionally. Are you still doing much teaching, for example? And what about research projects? Are you involved in any at the moment? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I, I find myself wearing a lot of different hats. Uh, I still do teach. Uh, I love teaching, working with a class on Thursday nights, working with practicum students. Uh, I do advising. Uh, working on finishing up a multi-year grant project from the U.S. Department of Education. 
Uh, I mentioned the curriculum revisions we've been working on. I've got a few different publications that I'm working on, some individual and some co-authored pieces, uh, gearing up for spring conference season, uh, serving on different committees, and then some work projects for academic affairs. Wow, that uh, sounds like you're very busy indeed. And uh, I, I mentioned earlier, one of the things I loved about the research work you did in Uruguay when we first met was that it was very revealing and threw a lot of light on some of the things that we were up to um, on the project that were were not happening in schools or were happening in schools in the country. And that really opened up the pathways for improvement. Um, for me, I think this is the kind of the best type of academic research, especially when it comes to English language teaching. Do you agree? Uh, yes, I, I think the role of research in English language teaching is so important. And uh, particularly with that project in Uruguay, what I loved so much was I, I spent most of my time just observing and interviewing people to try and understand how this project was working, to describe it. And a lot of that research for me was trying to put down on paper, uh, what are these best practices that teachers are using? And uh, so I had a few publications that came out of that, uh, a few talks uh, where I went back to Uruguay to talk about that. And I've tried to take that into other work that I do. So as I'm working with professional development for our faculty, I like to go in and observe classes and highlight the strengths that I'm already seeing there. And then identify what are potential gaps that we may need to fill in with professional development. Wow, yeah. Do you remember much about um, about that trip to Uruguay and, and the kind of things you saw in the classrooms? What was it that you observed that surprised you or the things that you saw that were, you know, definitely good practice, etc.? Yes. Um... I was just amazed at the resourcefulness of teachers. I remember seeing a teacher who uh, she had to teach a math lesson and then she also had to teach an English lesson and she combined the two together. And just seeing someone who was, so this was a classroom teacher who was new to teaching English, uh, a Uruguayan classroom teacher. and. It was quite beautiful how she brought together the math content and the English content, which made both of the content richer for her students. That's just one that I remember comes to mind whenever I think about strong things that I saw in the classroom. Yeah, I remember. It. Well, I know that the, the teachers there, the primary school teachers, had to sort of adjust to a very different type of role uh, for many of them where they had to sort of facilitate a kind of live classroom interaction yes. of a teacher who came in through video conferencing but then also they had the two extra classes where they had to practice what was taught in that first class but without necessarily being able to speak English themselves which uh, is quite something. Yes and, and I think seeing that so that co-teaching that you saw happen uh, between the classroom teacher and the remote teacher, for me, it was fascinating to see these great relationships that happened where two instructors were sharing in that Uruguayan teachers who knew the local context even more specifically, and then remote teachers who I saw did a great job getting to know their students, getting to know the context, uh, I remember seeing remote teachers learning about soccer, uh, which I believe you call football, on uh, the different teams, uh, learning about the food, sharing about it. Yeah, it just, that was one of the highlights of my career, I'll definitely say. Yeah, I think I, I, I agree. I mean, my time, I, the, the time I spent in, in Uruguay was fascinating. And I also got to not in the kind of rigorous way with an idea, with the intention of researching what was happening, but I definitely got to visit various schools around the country and see uh, see the English that was happening in the follow-on classes as well as experience the live classes from, uh, from the actual classroom and school, which was fascinating, but also get to teach other students 
get to talk to the students and teachers. Yeah. I found it was it was an amazing experience. I think it's a window on a world of a kind of teaching and learning that was happening in Uruguay that to a different in a different way um, most of the educational systems around the world ended up changing to that during the pandemic I know I found that it's that project was so ahead of time so well organized and so well thought out and when the rest of the world was finding we had to shift to remote teaching, teaching on Zoom, using Skype, using Google Meets. I know that for me, I went back and thought about everything that I saw in Uruguay. And then I had another project I worked on in Brazil right after Uruguay that was also mm -hmm. using video conference. So just knowing those possibilities that were out there really helped me. I know it helped a lot of other people because there was research that was being published on using video conference for instructional purposes. Yeah. No. Did you find that that experience, well, you've all, you've just said that, that experience helped you, but were you able to help other people you're working with and uh, your university uh, switch to online teaching and learning or were they already doing that? So we were already doing a lot of asynchronous instruction with online, we were not, we had not been doing much with synchronous video conference for, mm -hmm. for our program, for our TESOL program. So we did have to make that switch. And I led, I led training for all of our instructors on how to make classes more interactive because there was this, I think people had this concept that once you move to video conference and you're not live in the room that you were going to lose something and what i saw in uruguay is you're not losing something it's different and there are a lot of new affordances that you have and this is also what expectations are going to be in the future for communication uh, already people were using uh, using their phones for video calls to communicate with each other already a lot of interviews were taking place uh, through video conference. So this was authentic communication. Now it's a matter of harnessing all that into the classroom. So we did a lot of how do we model for our teachers things that we can do online that we can then do in the classroom. So I think for me, seeing how video conference was used in the classroom in Uruguay, and then also in Brazil, had me think, so now how do I translate that into doing that for a class for TESOL students, for teachers, as part of a teacher training program, mm -hmm. and at the same time, highlight how you do that for English learners when you're teaching them. Right. And I imagine that the, the adaptation was quite relatively smooth uh, to it. To a degree is that right because because I, of your experience and i found that things went quite smoothly uh a few instructors at first had some questions about it and once they leaned into it i think people found this really does work and we had some teachers some students where that became their preference they wanted to continue to have classes remotely i think the other thing is it helps in terms of equity uh, mm. when we have our classes, when we have options that are through video conference. So one of the projects I'm working on, we have a, a large TESOL program in Uzbekistan. And uh, before the pandemic, it was all in person. And the, the need for the program throughout the country was quite large. And we had students who were traveling to the capital city and sometimes traveling several hours to get to class each week, driving, staying at someone's house. But when we had classes through Zoom, then they were able to stay at home and still access the same content. I think also we saw with our grant project in St. Louis 
and we found the same thing in Uzbekistan. We have a lot of teachers who are parents of young children. And so childcare mm-hmm. is a challenge that they face. And I know when I was teaching at home, uh, I've got three dogs. So sometimes I have a dog in my lap and uh, people would have cats that would come by and we had uh, teachers who would have children on their laps and we got to watch them grow up during the program. And it formed, a, 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 I think, a stronger community as we got to know each other more. So I, I always like to think that I never like the, the discourse that it is not as good. It is something that's different. And there are always some benefits that come and there will be things that we lose, but it's always this give and take as we shift. Yes, I, I tend to agree with you, DJ. I think, uh, you know, I, I have two cats here and they're always um, coming up to the screen during meetings, etc. And I think it's just become something that um, is expected from time to time. I have colleagues uh, yes. um, that have that as well. In fact, one of my cats is sleeping um next to me at the moment as we speak (laughs) which is quite funny um yeah so uh i'd love to know a little bit more about uzbekistan that sounds like a fascinating experience um how did you get involved with that so uh i work for webster university our home campus is in st louis and we have a global focus we have numerous international campuses around the world uh, several of them are in Europe. We've got one in Accra, Ghana. And in 2018, I was asked to go to Uzbekistan. Uh, our university had um, an MOU with the Ministry of Education there. And I was asked to meet with people from a few different universities and try to identify a partner to be able to offer our MA in TESOL program. It was TESOL at the time, it's TESOL now. Mm-hmm. And uh, we identified a partner, uh, Uzbekistan State University of World Languages. And uh, we, we started the program. We were asked to see if we could start with 100 students. We started with 125. Uh, it was a, a large start. And uh, it was the first US-based academic program to be offered in the country. And then we continue with meetings on opening a campus location. So I had the opportunity to go through a, a building that is now our campus location. And uh, we now have Webster University Tashkent in Tashkent City. Uh, we also have uh, a TESO program that we operate in Samarkand, which is about two hours west on the high speed train. And so we've got about, I think, around 400 students in the TESOL program now and a few thousand at Webster University in Tashkent. So it's, uh, uh, it's been an amazing project for me to work on uh, going to Uzbekistan a few times. So I think I've been six mm-hmm. times getting to know our students, getting to know our faculty, observing classes seeing how does a U.S. developed curriculum and program work in Uzbekistan. So part of these curriculum revisions that I was talking about earlier has been thinking about how do we create a curriculum that meets the needs of teachers throughout the world. Right. Uh, We currently have an Uzbek faculty member who's on a fellowship uh, staying with us in St. Louis. Uh, Dilnoza, and she's been working with a, a colleague, Soli and I, uh, once a week where we just sit down for four hours and go through a course and really try to look at everything in it to see, is this going to meet the needs of all of our students and for our faculty? And with our, our largest component of the program now being in Uzbekistan, everything that I do, I have to be thinking about Uzbekistan and our teachers there, our students there. Well, that sounds fascinating. And um, what 
in I know we don't have time to go into it now, but in very general terms, what kind of things have you found in Uzbekistan that you needed to make changes for, or what are the big differences that uh, you you started to realize that you need to accommodate? So there are certain assumptions that we might make in the United States in terms of how how people do readings, how people do assignments, what are expectations. So we found that we needed to make more explicit what different expectations are. So what does it mean to, to go through an academic reading? Uh, so uh, we do a lot of work with academic reading skills, looking at uh, writing, the kind of writing that is expected and so I, I see some things that are similar to, so my first full-time position was at the University of Barcelona. Yeah. And I remember when I was teaching there, uh, it, it, was a, it was a difference for me where I, I remember I was teaching a, a British literature course and uh, I, I found that students didn't do the readings. And I thought, it's a literature course. How do you not do the readings? <laughs> and that uh, they said, well, we're just here, the, the lecture notes, just read the lecture notes and they'll copy down the lecture notes and then they'll, we'll give them a test. And I'm thinking, you know, from my perspective, but to study literature, you need, you need to read the literature. Yeah. So that was my, probably my first moment of recognizing there's more than one concept of what it means to learn and what it means to be assessed and, and to move through a system. So with Uzbekistan, it's recognizing that there are differences in their system from the U.S. system, and those are differences, and we have to make explicit for our program what we're looking for for them to move through the program. Right. That's, uh, that's really interesting, this idea of studying literature as well um, without actually reading the the books it's almost it it it's almost like you want to ask the students why are you studying literature if you don't want to read the books it's quite weird but um you mentioned barcelona and to go back i would love to go back in time actually to barcelona or even before then and explore how you got to where you where you are now, how did you get started in education and academia? Uh, and how, what was it that attracted you to working in higher education in particular? Uh, so, uh, so I did end up, I, I had a great opportunity in high school to go to Barcelona for a month and stay mm -hmm. with the family. Uh, so I, I, I was not, I wouldn't say I was the strongest student in high school until I found Spanish, studying Spanish. And um, that gave me a love of foreign languages. And so I did a, a, a summer trip, or I'm sorry, uh, a spring break trip to Mexico. And I loved that time there and I wanted more. So I wanted to do a full year study abroad. My parents said, no, you're not going to do a full year. And I, I found a summer program that was a month. So I found myself immersed in a language and that, that was invigorating for me. So when I went to college, I majored in Spanish and I went to the University of Illinois because they had an exchange program with the University of Barcelona. So I had the opportunity to spend a year there as a student. So I took my classes in Spanish uh, and uh, I had one class in English, was learning Catalan and I ended up in the summer, I wanted to stay longer that summer afterwards, I got hired to work in a summer camp teaching English. And I had no idea what I was doing. I was given a dry erase marker and a whiteboard. There were no books and just told, well, teach them English. And I just had to figure it out. And the woman who ran, ran the camp, she was really great. And she said, you did a good job. And she was very impressed. Uh, I look back and think, wow, I would have done things very differently, but this was this is what I did at the time. So I didn't I didn't necessarily think that would be a career, but after I finished my bachelor's degree 
I ended up working as a night manager for a restaurant and part-time in a bookstore and realized that's just, that's not what I wanted to be doing. I wanted to do something different. So I thought of grad school, opened up a graduate catalog and literally went through accounting, no, advertising, no. And I got to English as an international language. And I thought, you know, I really enjoyed my time uh, teaching English in that summer camp. Let's give this a try. So I, I ended up doing my uh, Master of Arts in Teaching English Second Language at the University of Illinois. And it's, it's really been a major part of my career ever since. Wow, that's, it's really interesting to, to hear that journey. Were you not tempted to delve deeper into the Spanish um, as you'd spent so much time sort of with that language? Was it, was it not something that you thought you might want to pursue? Or we, was the experience in that summer camp the one that decided English was for you? I, I think because when I, when I studied Spanish, I wasn't studying to be a Spanish teacher, and uh, oddly enough, I didn't find studying the the literature as appealing, which is a little ironic because I ended up doing my my doctorate then in comparative literature. So I studied a lot of literature, uh, including literature in Spanish, because I had to do courses in Spanish literature. Um, yeah, I, I it's kind of. I don't really know why I didn't go that direction. I think I just found that teaching English, I, I greatly enjoyed it. With linguistics, I was really drawn to phonetics and phonology. And uh, once I found teaching English pronunciation, this was a field that I just found I, I greatly enjoyed, learned a lot about it, and, and that's become a major part of, uh, of what I work with. Yes. Um, so I know, looking at your website, actually, it's clear that one of your areas of speciality and special interest is pronunciation. And I think you even have a YouTube channel with practical do, pronunciation yes. strategies to help uh, instructors, instructors teach their learners. Uh, so what, what is it uh, that appeals to you so much about that? And what do you think teachers need help with most when it comes to teaching pronunciation? So I think my love of pronunciation, it started in Barcelona. So oh. when I was a student in Barcelona, I, I, I wanted to take a class that was taken by the local Catalan students. Right. And at the time, they had year-long classes. Uh, the U.S. system was... Um, we're on a semester-based system, and the classes that we took as, as part of our study abroad were semester-long. So I thought, well, I'll take a class that will be in English, and here's a course on English pronunciation. Uh, that should be easy to take. Uh, and it was anything but easy. It was one of the most difficult courses I ever took. Uh, so we had uh, Dr. Brian Mott, I remember, taught this class. I was the only native speaker of English in the course. And we were learning RP English, mm -hmm. uh, very British style English, which was different from my variety. And that, that opportunity for me to look at my language and look at a different variety of my language and break it down into terms that students can understand was really helpful for me. And I remember our professor would always ask me, so, so how do you say this in, in America? So I was always being put on the spot in that class. Mm -hmm. uh, and I always sat towards the back and then everyone would turn around and look at me. And it's like, why am I sitting in back? This just, this just didn't work out. I'm not going to be ignored. Um, so um, when I did my master's in... Tessel, I started my first year of the MA in Tessel doing some pronunciation tutorials and also taking a course with Dr. Wayne Dickerson at the University mm -hmm. of Illinois in teaching English pronunciation. So now I had another person who had decades of experience taking me through how to describe English language teaching or uh, pronunciation teaching. 
And then my second year of graduate school, uh, I got mentored personally by Dr. Dickerson in teaching a course in pronunciation. So I would actually watch him teach uh, at 9 a.m. Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then I would go in and teach later that day the, the same content. Mm. It was a great way to learn to just watch someone teach content that was very difficult content at first for me to learn how to teach and then get to teach it myself. And then I just had years of, of teaching the same kind of content, developing my own materials. And then it was when I was a faculty member at the University of Barcelona, I started developing my own materials. So the practical pronunciation materials, those I started developing them though there in Barcelona, doing some tutoring. I did some uh, sessions on pronunciation there. And then I got hired at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, which brought me basically brought me home because my family is from the St. Louis area. Mm-hmm. And I was hired because they were looking for a pronunciation specialist. And I found that textbooks I was looking at, I wasn't quite happy with what was in them. So I ended up writing my own textbook. Hmm. And um, so I taught those materials for years at Washington University and uh, took that into Webster University, uh, a course in teaching English pronunciation. And so use that with teacher candidates. So... I've presented on this at conferences and people just kept asking for, for more on this. So the YouTube channel is one way to get that content out there to more people. So my goal is to try to take concepts that may be a little more difficult to teach and make them as practical as possible. And uh, so my goal is to, to do some more videos. Wow. And what was it about the textbooks or materials that that you were not happy about that existed uh, related to teaching pronunciation that you needed you thought it would be better to to change? If it, if it's easy to summarize, I don't know. Yeah, so no, that's a good question. So there's a lot of research that shows for to increase intelligibility and comprehensibility, super segmentals play a really important role. So some people, when they focus on pronunciation, they'll they'll focus on what are called the segmentals, which are consonant and vowel sounds. And there are some important consonant and vowel sounds, and I enjoy teaching consonant and vowel sounds, but a lot of my experience has been working with more advanced learners of English. So when they're more advanced, they have, they're already fluent in the language. They have a lot of the fundamentals in terms of the consonants and vowels, but there are things such as the rhythm and where the, where the stress or the focus goes in a phrase when they are, uh, when they're teaching a class. So I worked a lot with international teaching assistants, uh, MBAs, uh, MBA students who were looking at going on the job market and uh, and giving public mm-hmm. presentations. So I wanted materials that focused more on those super segmentals, but also some of the more complex structures that graduate students and professionals would come across. So I would see in textbooks materials that would look at compound nouns and the compound nouns would be noun plus noun. Uh, it, it would be these two part compound nouns. But as I was analyzing the language that our learners were using, there were these complex compound nouns. So uh, like a cell phone battery charger, a cell phone battery mm-hmm. charger that has, that's a common noun that we use. And you've got cell, phone, battery, charger, where there are four elements in that compound noun. I wasn't finding any materials that was able to break that down pedagogically for students to understand and for teachers to be able to explain it. 
So that's how a lot of these materials came about. Okay, that's uh, that makes a lot of sense. It's great. Now, changing the subject slightly and going back to your work, uh, your project work, um, I'd like I'd love to hear more about some of the projects or countries that you've been that you visited, projects you've been involved in, especially mm-hmm. those outside the the US. Um, the projects. I think you've worked on research and consulting projects and presented in many countries. I see listed on your website, apart from the ones that you've already mentioned, Canada, um, Ecuador, Peru, Argentina, Spain, Greece, the Netherlands, Italy, United Arab Emirates, Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan, China, Macau, Thailand, and Vietnam. It, uh, it's quite a, quite a number. Is there a country in particular that fascinates you or one project in particular that you're particularly proud of the work that you've done there? It's when well, we already talked about it is Uzbekistan. I'm, right. I'm very proud of that project. I, I really knew nothing about Uzbekistan before that project. Uh, I mean, with Uruguay, because I was a Spanish major, I had studied the Spanish language, uh, culture of different Spanish-speaking countries. So I at least had a background to work with there. When I got to Uruguay, I knew the language. I could get around easily and communicate with everyone. Uzbekistan was, I I was really outside of my comfort zone there. And I think it it stretched me to to look differently. Um, But I think with that, so with Uruguay, it was Uruguay was also an, an intimidating project because this was a a national project. So I wasn't just going and working with uh, and studying a, a small group of teachers or or one school. This was something that was national, and, and you know this from all the work that you and your team mm-hmm. did on this project. Uh, in Uruguay, I had the opportunity to live in five different cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, which gave me a very different view. And the Uruguay project really taught me to look at English language teaching from a more systematic, um, like as a system. Mm-hmm. All the different actors who were involved from the policymakers to different stakeholders to understanding how English fits into society and how English fits into the education system. Because once you make a change at one educational level, then it changes in other places. And then that impacts teacher preparation to then teach English at those levels. Yeah. So taking that knowledge then to Uzbekistan, that helped. And I guess before before I went to Uzbekistan, I I went to Ecuador, mm-hmm. and I had two trips to Ecuador. So the first trip was finding out from a university what they were looking for, mm-hmm. and I think it was from from Uruguay. I learned it's not necessarily about what knowledge you have that you come and you bring, it's more about the questions that you ask. Yeah. And I think once I got that down, it changed how I approach things. And I think that's that more academic side of me. So I had that background of teaching of I'm a teacher, I'm going to come in and you always do a needs analysis. But I found that needs analysis gets even bigger when you do any type of professional development, consulting, um, capacity building. So with Ecuador, I had a list of questions that I sent ahead of time. And the response was, wow, these are some really great questions. And I found that it built a lot of uh, good faith with the university because they saw uh, I cared about who they were, what they were doing, what their goals were. 
and so that was I ended up going and spending a week essentially doing consulting and professional development. But my approach was rather than just telling them, this is what you should do. We took a whiteboard and, and markers, and we started putting things on the board and trying to figure things out. And I remember working with a group of teachers and we were just mapping out things like, uh, how many teachers do you have who are hired? How many classrooms do you have access to? How large are the classrooms? How many students can sit in those classrooms? How many students do you need to serve? What are the different levels that students are at? What are the what's the target level that they need to be at? How many students are not meeting the target level and then need to repeat the classes? To start to figure out how uh, how many teachers were going to be needed to be hired, the kind of training that they would need, and I remember spending. Uh, several hours with teachers in a room. And then I went back to the apartment I rented. And then the next day they said, so we met after you left and here's what we put together. And I was just, I loved it. It was wow. great because I knew that I was only there for a week. So for me to come up with the whole plan or come up with all the solutions, that really wasn't going to be the best approach they needed to become self-sufficient. And what they showed me is they have that capacity. They have that knowledge to take questions, come up with other questions and come up with a plan. And so I did professional development for their faculty, but then they came up with that plan of how many faculty they needed to go to administration and ask for additional instructors. So I think that was a, a formative experience for me, then going to Uzbekistan, there it was meeting with members from their ministries of education, uh, asking a lot of similar questions to find out what are your goals with this, understanding what the policies are. So when I first arrived in Uzbekistan, all master's degrees were two-year programs in the second year Inc. was a thesis. And that was one of the original questions is, do you want a thesis? We've got a thesis that's on the books. We can do that. And they wanted a, a one-year master's program that was more practice-based. So, and that's what we already specialized in. So that, that made it easier on my end but part of that project was then working with the ministry to get permission to do a one-year master's degree that mm. would be recognized as a, as a degree so that our graduates could get jobs at universities. And, and now I'm very happy to say we have graduates uh, from Webster's TESOL program working all over Uzbekistan at, at universities, at, at schools. Uh, but it took that early side of making sure that what we're doing will fit within their educational system. So we had to make sure that we're meeting their needs. And then I was very grateful that uh, they made changes uh, so that our program would fit in. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. I think, you know, that, that what you've just talked about working at a kind of system level, um, be it one university or across a larger area or even nationally, I think it's a fascinating thing. And quite often it's, it's very complex as well um, to understand what kind of changes need to be made and to take into account uh, all of the different stakeholders basically working in the yes. system i think yeah. which can complicate things even more can't it yes so the the grant that we're working on here in st louis we're working with five school districts uh preparing content teachers to get their missouri ell certification mm. and this project also has a strong focus on capacity building, looking at things from uh, more of the systems perspective. So 
I still believe very strongly in preparing individual teachers for the skills that they need to go into a classroom. But along with that, it is so important for teachers to be able to work with other teachers and with administrators and with other stakeholders in order to make different plans and to advocate for changes in policies. Mm -hmm. So with this project, we've done a series of Saturday seminars, which are focused on family, parent, and community engagement. Mm -hmm. And uh, we took a communities of practice approach, putting teachers who, uh, we call them cohort members, uh, teachers who are in the cohorts going through the courses into small groups with mentor teachers. So these are experienced uh, ELL teachers, English language learner teachers that have uh, experience working in these same school districts. And over to your period, they come up with projects of how to leverage families, parents, and the community to support English learners. So teachers are going through coursework to learn about classroom, pra uh, classroom practices but then on there, uh, through these Saturday seminars, uh, it's this collaborative piece of developing these uh, projects. And then a number of these projects have been put into place. So teachers go back to their schools. Uh, we have them present them at the end. We invite administrators from their schools. And we're really excited when we hear back from our teachers that plans that they came up with are making a change. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's the most important thing, isn't it? That's really interesting. And speaking of change, um, again, on your website, I think I can see that you've written a number of thought pieces which have a focus on EDI, that is equality, yes. diversity and inclusion. And that is such a big area and so much needs to be changed uh i think still what do you think are the most important aspects of edi as far as raising awareness and moving towards positive change uh yes so i think i think identity plays such an important role mm -hmm. so understanding our our own identities how our identity impacts how we understand language how we experience language how we uh, construct our identity all becomes a role with that. Uh, so the way I approach this and in, in the USA, we call it DEI diversity, equity, inclusion, same letters, mm. um, is, um, uh, so as a, as a gay man, uh, how I view, how I describe my relationship and, uh, how I've seen different classes. So, uh, I've been in classes where, so uh, imagine you're, you're married and so you've got a man and a woman who are there and like, well, but mm -hmm. this, this doesn't work for me in, in a classroom setting because I have to think about how mm -hmm. I'm going to be using language. So this activity that's been developed isn't actually going to be an authentic one for me. I'm going to have right. to play a role that's not myself, but I want to be myself in learning and using the language. So I, I think that's why I, I found that importance. And with our curriculum revisions, this has been such a great moment of really looking for what voices are represented in the curriculum mm. and trying to find more diverse voices. Uh, going back and just looking at readings that we had, I realize there, there are a lot of voices that are missing. So how do we ensure that our students get access to more voices so that the teachers in our program see themselves reflected in our curriculum and see themselves as having a place in ELT as a profession? And then also how will that prepare them to to cultivate the individual identities of their learners right in, inside and outside of their classrooms very 
very interesting. I think one of the one of the reasons why, um, well, one of the things that seems to be apparent and seems to be something that a lot of uh, people are trying to change now is this reflection of different voices and different identities in mm-hmm. in typically published materials, isn't it? So yes. materials that are published for a global audience in particular uh, yes. tend to shy away from uh, the kind of variety or diversity that exists in real life, um, usually because of you know marketing reasons or because yes. they have to appeal to different societies where perhaps they're not as inclusive as, uh, as others. Uh, what's the solution to that, do you think? Oh, that's a good question. And so if I'm remembering correctly, I think it's a, a chapter by John Gray out of Barcelona. Oh, yes. um, Hello, John. Talking about, okay, yes. Uh, so he's got a chapter that our, our students read um, as part of the new curriculum on uh, textbooks that are created for the global market. Mm-hmm. And he does a really great job of looking at, um, you know, what's, What's at stake? So there is that publishing companies, they do want to make money. Uh, At the same token, we are trying to create materials where students see each other. And he does a great job of looking at uh, how we've come a long way in terms of gender. Uh, We still need to come further in terms of gender representation, uh, looking at uh, representation of race and ethnicity, um, representation uh, for sexual identity, gender identity. Those are those are areas where, as a field, we're still behind, um, and I think that's going to take time for us. There's a lot of great work out there on querying the curriculum, so ways that uh, teachers can supplement materials. So I think for in our program. So we read, um, uh, teachers will be reading Gray's chapter, and we've got a few other uh, articles that we look at. So um, JPP Gerald on decentering whiteness uh, in English language teaching. So Josh Pais uh, querying the curriculum. Uh, so we look at, and then we actually ask the teachers to look at published textbooks mm. to see what kind of representations are in there? So think about your learners. And so our teachers have been doing all this reflective work on who are your learners and who's represented in the classroom. Now take a look at published materials. How will your learners see themselves reflected in the materials in the published textbooks? And if you don't see them reflected, then how do you supplement those materials? Because I think that becomes the important next piece is when our teachers know how to develop their own materials to add on to it, that's how you can fill in those gaps that uh, often are are there. Of course. And and there needs to be a degree of localization, of personalization for any materials uh, that you're using to make it more sort of relevant to mm-hmm. the the people in the in your classrooms, isn't there? Isn't there? Yes. Yeah. This is uh, this is fascinating, DJ. I'm so happy that you joined me today. Um, Thank you for asking me. It's been a, pl- a pleasure. It's great to reconnect with you. I mean, this is I, one of the main reasons why why I do this because it gives me an excuse to have this type of conversation that. I normally wouldn't have the opportunity to do. So thank you very much. I know. And, and we got to spend a lot. Uh, we did talk a lot in 2016, but I don't think we yeah. ever got to this level of really having a conversation. No, I mean, that's that's it. You never really end up finding, even when we were in the same physical space, and uh, you never really get the time to sit down and, and yeah. talk to this degree about about this type of thing. So um that's that for me is the the reason the big the main reason why I do this basically. Well, good. It's 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 great. I've listened to many of the other episodes, and you really just do a great job. And the preparation that you do, and I, I appreciate that you've taken the time to 
to learn things about me that uh, and ask really good questions that have just made this easy. Oh, I'm I'm glad you think that. Thank you very much. I think, um, as I said, it's it's uh, having having people like yourself on as a guest makes me sort of go and and learn a little bit more about about you to find out you know what you're interested in and how um how you do your job etc and uh, i think that's that's a benefit really and hopefully people listening will will benefit from that as well i hope so too great so that brings us to the end of today's morning break everybody thank you very much for listening um those of you listening live and those of you who are listening back to the recording many many thanks to today's special guest dj kaiser for joining me and remember there are teachers talk radio shows all week and you can join me again next week at the same time bye for now you've been listening to teachers talk radio tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org we look forward to hearing from you next time on teachers talk radio